That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. Well, there is, there is, and it feels really good and it's really important. Um, I think when lawyers do it, it's especially important because uh, we can do things that nobody else can do. Uh, We can make the justice system work in this country and make democracy work in this country for people who need it the most, who otherwise wouldn't have it. Welcome to BS Beyond Stereotypes. Here with me today is David Lash, who uh, I actually know personally through my husband. They went to law school together. Um, I'm sure that you will be inspired by David's story, by his, his passions. Um, but what I'd like to say about David is that he is genuinely the nicest person I've ever met. And I think that that's <laughs> going to come. <laughs> that's going to come through. Uh, I hope. Don't let me down, David. Um, but I just want to say hi, David, and thanks for joining us. Uh, well, it's my pleasure to be here. That's quite an introduction. Uh, you must be channeling my late mother because nobody else talks about me that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I am a mom, so, you know. Um, David graduated from UCLA Law School. He was the head of uh, a nonprofit in Los Angeles called Bedzetic um, for about eight years, uh, I think after practicing law for a while, and then he became head of Bedzetic. He is now the managing counsel for pro bono and public interest at uh, the law firm O'Melveny and Myers in Los Angeles. Um, And uh, is there anything I missed there? That sounds good. Okay. What I wanted to start with, because we are going to be doing a little BSing about um, stereotypes here, I thought I'd start with the fact that the the way you and my husband met um, was at law school, but because you played um, basketball together. And, <laughs> um, you know, I can, I know that there's stereotypes on both sides, right? So, Jeff, my husband is six three and and black, and so I'm sure everybody assumes he played basketball, which he did. Um, but you are um, probably almost opposite that, <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm wondering how many stereotypes, you know, like how often you people people were surprised that. You played basketball um, in high school at Hamilton High, and you know, and that you're a very good basketball player. So let's start with that stereotype, David. Talk to me about it. <laughs> well, first of all, just calling me a very good basketball player uh, warms my heart. It's all I ever wanted to be in my whole life is a very good basketball player. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I met I met Jeff, your husband, uh, the first day of law school. Uh, my name's Lash. He's Lasley. We were seated in alphabetical order. 
Uh, so it was it was me and Jeff and our still good friend Lori Levinson all sitting in a row next to each other, and we met each other. And uh, there was a group of guys right after our first class who started talking about playing basketball. And both Jeff and I, who had struck up a nice conversation, uh, raised our hands, said we wanted to play. Um, and I, you know, I think you're right. Uh, everybody assumed Jeff would be a great basketball player. Um, and here I was, like, you know, a five foot ten Jewish guy. Uh, they didn't <laughs> know if I was going to be a good basketball player, and may have been disappointed that I raised my hand to uh, to play in the game. But um, I was a gym rat from the time I was, you know, eight years old. And all I ever wanted to do was play basketball. Uh, so I've been dealing with that my whole life. I went to a high school and played on a high school team where I was one of three white guys on the team. Um, and uh, so, you know, that has kind of been my upbringing, my childhood. All I wanted to do was play basketball. And I was always one of the only white guys and short white guy no less <laughs> and, and so so that in and of itself experience kind of makes you unique in in some ways do you feel like overcoming that stereotype has allowed you to be more um you, you know more more uh wanting to understand diversity and accepting of people who are different because you were considered different, in, at least in that setting? Um, you know, the interesting thing to me growing up playing basketball, where I was always one of only a few white guys, is that as soon as we started playing, uh, there was no differentiation anymore, at least in my mind. Um, mm -hmm. you know, when, once we all got on the court and started banging and shooting and, and trash talking, um, it was all okay. Uh, so whatever stereotype I had to overcome was quickly overcome once we stepped on the court, at least that was my perception of it. Um, you know, I, I felt bad if I had to guard Jeff because he was so much taller than me um, and stronger than me. But other than that, um, once we got on the court, it was, you know, it was just a battle. So trash talking is the great equalizer. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, the great equalizer was shooting the jump shot, you know, especially from uh, the three point range. That's, that was my game. <laughs> and as soon as everybody saw I could do that and everybody had a role on the team or during the game, um, then it really, it, it was great at that point. Um, so, so that's and, a great, that's a, that's a really good point about having a role on the team and, you know, and diversity, how that plays in with diversity in terms of, having a diverse team, particularly in the practice of law. And I know that you, um, you know, you're now the managing counsel for pro bono and public interest. Do, do you make an effort to make sure that the team working on, on cases is diverse? Well, I, you know, 
in a law firm these days, uh, everybody, uh, clients of all types, commercial, pro bono, are always looking for diverse teams. Um, and I try, I strive for that in, in the pro bono world as much as the other lawyers strive for it in the commercial world. Um, I think it's particularly appropriate and important in the pro bono world because so many of the clients are so diverse. Uh, you know, when we're doing pro bono work, we're rolling up our sleeves and um, going into diverse communities, representing diverse clients. It's not a matter of talking about diversity. It's a matter of showing up. And we right. show up uh, for diverse clients and diverse communities. And if we bring in a diverse team, it's all the more appropriate and it's all the more important. And so when you, when you have people who are not, have not maybe, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who have gone to law schools, elite law schools, particularly and end up in an elite law firm like, like O'Melveny may not have had as much exposure to diverse, uh, diverse people to underprivileged or, or people, you know, who are, have not been, um, uh, they haven't necessarily been exposed in those areas. What kind of, you know, have you seen transformations of people who have, you know, who've gone in and, and how they come out on the other end of, of lawyers? Um, have you seen them transform ever? Yes, absolutely. I think that the biggest eye-opening experience for lawyers in big, major, elite firms when they're doing pro bono work it involves uh, people living in poverty. Uh, you know, to explain to the lawyers that your client may not have a cell phone or may not have access right. to email or has never been in a huge building in the middle of downtown, you know, on the 35th floor, uh, and that that can be intimidating. Those are eye-opening revelations for a lot of lawyers. Uh, so there is a certain amount of cultural sensitivity training uh, that needs to be done. You know, uh, well, we work with legal aid organizations a lot in our pro bono cases, and uh, they have, you know, just great experience. Um, they do it every day. Uh, so part of the training and supervision and mentoring we get from the legal aid organizations involves cultural sensitivity. Um, you know, you can't always pick up a phone and call your client uh, if your right. client, you know, is homeless. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot to learn and there's a lot of eye opening. And, and you and I actually did an article together once and, and, and we're on a, uh, uh, made a presentation once about um, how pro bono could actually help um, diverse associates um and uh, you know kind of get through the the big firm uh, process are you seeing that 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 is the case you know has it has it helped associates particularly diverse associates um 
make it through the process in, in order to like get good experience in the law firm? You know, that's a really interesting topic that I don't know the answer to. Um, as you remember on, on that panel we did, we tried to navigate whether or not um, having a robust pro bono program was important to, related to, walked hand in hand with a robust diversity program. And I like to think that um, diverse lawyers uh, find a good deal of satisfaction and um, uh, importance to the work they're doing if they are working in diverse communities, if they're if they see their law firm uh, rolling up their collective sleeves and helping diverse people in diverse communities, that that's important to diverse lawyers um, and that it gives them the opportunity for more experience um, and for more personal satisfaction. I like to think that. I don't know if it's true. Um, right. You know, am I myself engaging in stereotyping to assume that just because somebody comes from a different background means that that kind of background is more important to them. I, that may be bad stereotyping on my part, but I do like to believe that um, a diversity program and a pro bono program overlap to a great extent substantively and personally and make a difference. I don't know if I'm right. I looked at it more in terms of, you know, it's so a lot of times it's hard for diverse um, associates to get good work. You know, there's so many layers to that. You know, who's deciding who gets the work, who's deciding who gets, especially if they want to be litigators, who gets, who decides who gets to go to court? How do they get uh, substantive experience if they don't have a great relationship or they haven't figured out how to work the mentor, you know, sponsor relationship. And, you know, I was thinking of it more in terms of, you know, is, is pro bono a way to get some of the substantive experience in the courtroom and with clients and that kind of exposure that maybe they wouldn't otherwise get uh, just trying to, to make it through the big firm? Um, I, I think that a lot of lawyers in big firms use pro bono, uh, pro bono case handling, pro bono opportunities to get experience earlier in their careers than they might not otherwise get. Big corporate clients don't want to pay our outrageous hourly fees for somebody to learn how to take a deposition or to go to court for the first time. Um, so uh, associates of all ilk can get that kind of experience early on in their careers and uh, use that to build their careers by in, engaging in pro bono cases. I think it's particularly true with uh, young lawyers who come from diverse communities. I, I think right. that that it may be more important and 
more available to them than to other associates sometimes. Right, right, right. Okay, so that was really serious, and I'm glad we could be serious. But I'm trying to. <laughs> there, there are. Um, you've had some pretty incredible uh, cases and successes, and we're going to get to some serious um, uh, cases that you handled recently. Um, that um, I'm so proud of you guys for. But there was one case that I thought was kind of fun that our listeners might want to hear about. And it was the one, and I'm, forgive me, I don't, I don't remember the name of the case, but I know a movie was made after it uh, or about it. And somebody actually played you in the movie, I think. Um, so, yeah. Yes. Can you, can, can you tell us a little about, a, bit, a bit about that case and, and then how the movie um how well the movie did or didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a great movie. It was called uh, Woman in Gold. Uh, it was about um, a case that I was very involved in with a buddy of mine. His name is uh, Randy Schoenberg. He was representing uh, the descendant of a Holocaust survivor whose artwork had been stolen by the Nazis uh, at the outbreak, at the outset of World War II. And it was mm -hmm. the story of uh, the effort, the legal case, to uh, get those uh, pieces of art back into the family from whom they had been stolen. Uh, and it, they were Klimt paintings. They were beautiful. They're, you know, he's a renowned artist. And uh, the... This, the legal case was a fascinating one. It went up to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and then it was actually arbitrated in Austria. Um, so it was it was a fascinating case. Ryan mm -hmm. Reynolds played my buddy Randy, um, who <laughs> was a young lawyer and took this important case for his grandmother's friend, who uh, who was the descendant of the people from whom the artwork was stolen. She was an elderly woman who had herself survived the Holocaust. And Randy was a young lawyer. Uh, he actually left his firm and formed his own firm so he could handle this case. Uh, and I was running Beit Sedek at the time, which uh, was the only legal aid organization in the country that free of charge was helping Holocaust survivors recover reparations and property uh, arising from the Holocaust. So Randy asked, uh, we were on a panel together talking about Holocaust reparations and cases and we met and he asked if Beitzedek would join him in the case. So I sat with him at council table in, uh, on the first hearing, it was a motion to dismiss brought mm -hmm. on behalf of the government of Austria, and they marched in just this army of big firm lawyers. And there was Randy from his own shop and me from this little nonprofit sitting there lined up against uh, this array of uh, incredible law firms. And um, Randy argued it and won, and that was a very uh, key moment in the film. And, okay. but in the, but in the film, they had Randy sitting at council table by himself. I ended ah. up on the cutting room floor <laughs> <laughs> and not that I'm bitter or anything, 
but uh, uh, I got, you know, it was my taste of Hollywood. I ended up on the cutting room floor. Uh, but it was a great case, and, and Randy was magnificent, and Betzedek was so honored, and I was so honored myself to be a part of it. It was a, it was a wonderful case, and they made this and great she, movie about it. And she, they won, ultimately, and got the yes. painting back, correct? Ex- absolutely, yes. Uh-huh. Awesome. That's very cool. I know you, you uh, ran Betzedek, and is that how you ended up specializing in pro bono? Did, did your passion for it happen then? Did, did you have it before? Um, how, how did that, how did that happen? Well, uh, you know, it's probably part of the stereotyping, but I grew up in a, a <laughs> very uh, liberal Jewish, um, politically active, socially conscious family. And uh, I went to law school uh, because I was going to change the world. Um, okay. And as I was, I was graduating law school, I got offered a wonderful job to help change the world. Uh, and the pay was, wouldn't have even have covered the payment on my student loans. So right. I went to a law firm. I went to a private law firm. And uh, from the day I started at that private law firm, because of my predilections, I always had a pro bono file on my desk, always, okay. whether it was for the ACLU or public counsel or Betzetic or whomever. Um, I was always doing pro bono work. And then ultimately, um, you know, I, I was pretty passionate about it. And the opportunity arose sort of out of the blue to uh, apply for the CEO position at Betzetic, and I was really pretty happy in private practice with the combination of my commercial work and my pro bono work, but this opportunity arose, and I decided to jump on it, and um, shockingly, I got the job, and, <laughs> uh, and it just allowed me to immerse myself uh, in my passion. So now, you know, now that you are at O'Melveny and you're doing these, having these um, awesome opportunities, first let's talk about the, the uh, case that, you, that you guys, your team just won a few weeks ago uh, to, to reunite the kids um, and getting them out of ISIS grass and, and, and back with their father. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. That's a very emotional uh, case for us. Um, what's not very well known is that there is a new rash of uh, families being separated at the U.S.-Mexico border. Of course, when that happened, uh, you know, last year, um, there were these dramatic pictures of, you know, children being ripped out of the arms of their mothers and separated, and it was uh, just a horrific. Um, situation. Uh, and, and it sort of ended. But what has happened of late is that there's a whole new wave of family separations, which is being caused by the so-called Remain in Mexico program. The mig- it's called the Migrant Protection Program, where families present at the border and are not allowed to enter the United States, but or rather are forced to remain in Mexico and these border towns where they are crammed in 
uh, to terrible, terrible camps and refugee situations and parks. I mean, it's just an awful situation. Uh, it, right. It's very dangerous. People are getting kidnapped and assaulted. And now with the coronavirus, um, it's very unhealthy. It's really dangerous medically. Um, so what a lot of families have decided to do in order to protect their children is to send the children across the border by themselves. Um, wow. A gut-wrenching decision, but it's the only way that their kids are going to find any kind of safety in this really treacherous, horrifically dangerous situation at the border. So the kids mm. come across by themselves, and consequently they're detained and um, uh, they're separated from their families. Uh, so we were representing three siblings to whom this occurred. They they were with their mom in a border town when they were not allowed to enter the United States. One of the kids was almost kidnapped. One of the kids was assaulted. Uh, so wow. they came across the border uh, and then they were detained in immigration detention. Uh, we, re we started working with Care Coalition and the Justice Action Center, two wonderful legal aid organizations. And uh, we, uh, went to work, and this was just as the COVID-19 lockdown was beginning. So everybody was their first week working at home. So nobody had an office. Nobody oh, wow. had access to all of the, you know, the perks of working in a big firm and all of the uh, equipment. And um, we were all working at home, and we were working night and day. There must have been 10 O'Melveny lawyers plus the people from the two or legal aid organizations. And in the space of about eight or 10 days, we filed papers. Uh, we got the kids released from detention and reunited with their father, who was wow. living just a few miles from um, where the kids were being detained. Uh, and it was all done remotely. The judge was working remotely. The clerks of the court were working remotely. Nobody was ever in the same room. It was a massive undertaking to get it all done, much less to get it all done successfully. And it worked. And when the kids were released and reunited with their dad, it was just over the moon, emotionally wonderful. That's amazing. Congratulations. I mean, I just got goosebumps hearing that story again. And and, and the dad was already in the United States. Yes, right? dad had come in advance of mom and the kids, and he had uh, gotten in just before the Remain in Mexico program um, was implemented. So he was he was here in the United States. And so, and I'm wondering, how does, is that? Is it just luck? I mean, how does somebody in that situation um, end up get being lucky enough to to get the help of you guys? And there's got to be tons of people in that situation, but these people, did they just get lucky? Yeah, yeah, they just got lucky. Um, you know, there was there were lawyers talking to them at the right moment. Um, it's hard for lawyers to get uh, to cross the border and get into these border towns where everybody's 
you know, cramped into a small space. It's very hard. And yes, they got lucky. Right time, right wow. place, right moment. You know, yeah. and the, the legal funny. aid organizations are doing yeoman's work. They're just heroic trying to help as many people stuck in these situations as is possible and interview as many people as possible. Um, but, you know, they work very limited budgets, very limited staff, um, very limited access. Um, so, yes, it was kind of lucky. Wow. Timing is everything. So, so yeah. let me, let me, let me ask you this. Um, can, can you think of a time in either your personal or professional life where you you have just felt like because you know we're talking about stereotypes we're talking about authenticity remaining authentic um you know and can you think of a time where you felt like you just had to put your foot down and remain who you are um no matter the consequences i've asked everybody this this uh question and um, if you can't think of anything, that's fine. But, you know, is there anything you can think about where you just felt like, I, especially as a lawyer, you know, I, I, I'm not going to blend in. I'm not going to do what everybody else does. I'm going to be who I am. And I don't, I, no matter the, the, the consequences. Well, I've been very lucky because uh, running a legal aid organization and then running um, a really dedicated pro bono program. Uh, has allowed me to stand by my convictions, put my foot down, and be safe in doing so, because that's the environment I've been working in. However, when I was a very young lawyer at the first law firm I was employed at, um, I was asked to represent a landowner, a large landowner, a large um, client of the firm, um, uh, in uh, an eviction proceeding uh, okay. against some uh, el elderly Jews, frankly. Um, and I, I felt very uncomfortable doing that, trying to evict these people from their homes. And I found um, a loophole in what was then a fairly new rent stabilization law in Los, here in Los Angeles that I felt would allow the landlord to proceed and succeed in their eviction case against these elderly tenants. And I just couldn't abide by it. It was, uh, these people were living in the same neighborhood that my grandparents were living in. They could have been my mm -hmm. grandparents. My grandparents could have been subject to this loophole. Um, and I went into the two senior partners and it was after work. It was sort of late at night. And I walked in and I said, guys, gentlemen, I am really sorry. I just can't do this. I, uh, you know, these people are going to get evicted and it's going to be because of the great legal research I did. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's just tearing me up. And they looked at me and they said, you know, we could fire you for this. I said, yes, wow. I know. And they looked at me and they said, but we admire what you're doing. Um, awesome. So we're not going to fire you. And one of the senior partners said, I will handle the case. And I was just so grateful. And I had been so scared walking in there. And 
you know, they, they knew I was putting my job on the line um, and they respected it. Um, so I did, I had to put my foot down. I stood my ground. Now, the interesting thing about it beyond that was that there was a real lesson to be learned that I was too young and naive to understand, which I only learned of later. It happened that, you know, a number of years later, when I was applying to be the CEO at Betsetic, um, I was calling everybody I knew who might have some connection to the organization and could put in a good word for me. And I called that senior partner who had taken over the case for me way back when, and he said, oh, yeah, sure. I know, uh, I know one of the former uh, CEOs there were good friends. And I'd be happy to call him and put in a good word. And he said, you know, remember that case where uh, <laughs> we were representing the landlord and you didn't want to do it? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, uh, you remember I took over the case and I worked directly with the head of Betsetic to um, resolve that case. And we reached a really fair, equitable solution to it. And he and I became really good friends. Well, Interesting. I, I, I had actually, after that case, never again volunteered at Betsetic because I was so embarrassed and felt like I was, had been a sellout to even have some relationship with the landlord in that case that I stayed away from Betsetic because I was embarrassed. And it turned out that there was a real lesson to learn there. That somebody with good conscience, good people working together could come to a just conclusion. I, as a young lawyer, threw up my hands and said, I can't do this. The senior partner, as a seasoned veteran and the then head of Betsetic, they looked at it very differently than I looked at it. It was an issue to be resolved, and two fair-minded people came to a good resolution that I was too naive to understand. Wow, that's, that is a great story. That's a, so, you, so you stood your ground, you stood up for your values and your morals, and then ultimately you realized that there, there can be a win-win if people will work together. You got it. There was a real valuable, teachable moment there that I blew. Um, but, you know, I learned it eventually. <laughs> yeah, clearly. We've talked a lot about um, uh, pro bono and, and uh, stereotypes and all that. What role does diversity, inclusion, and equity play in how you walk through your life, either personally, professionally, or both? Well, um, I, I consider myself to be... Uh, a poverty law lawyer. Um, and the intersection of race and gender and poverty is a complicated intersection. And I find myself grappling with that all the time. What role does race and gender equality play in battling poverty? <clears throat> Most of a, a disproportionate percentage 
of my clients at Betsetic and through the pro bono program at O'Melveny are poor and people of color. And so I'm constantly thinking about it, grappling with it, trying to understand it. And it's, it's a great concern and worry uh, to me and of great complexity. So I do my best, you know, it's not always easy. Well, I, I think you, I think you do a great job. And I have to say that, um, in, in, you know, hearing about all of the things that you've done and the, the cases that you've dealt with, and a lot of it has to just be heart-wrenching, um, but you still um, keep doing it every day. You get up and you do, you continue to do it. And I, I just want to say in front of, I don't know how many people are going to listen to this, hopefully, you know, lots of people <laughs> will listen to it. Um, but I just want to thank you. I, I, I want to say thank you for, for everything that you do on behalf of people who are, who are lucky enough to, to uh, be able to have you on their team. Um, and I know my husband was lucky to have you on his basketball team. <laughs> so, and, and, I, and I feel fortunate that we're friends. Can I, can I just add one thing to that? Um, you're being overly generous, uh, which I really appreciate and I'm very grateful for. But, you know, there's, Talking about stereotypes, there's a stereotype in there that because I do this kind of work, uh, you know, I'm I'm this good guy, I'm this selfless guy, uh, you know, just doing things, as you say, on behalf of others. And uh, that's really not a true depiction all the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe the greatest single motivating factor in my doing this work is uh, it makes me feel good. I do it for me too. Um, right. I get in some ways as much out of it as the clients do. So, you know, this, this notion that I'm a selfless, nice guy um, is not really accurate. Um, I do it in many ways for selfish reasons makes me feel good. Um, and I, get you know, that. I think I, so just you know, one I, last I, and I get that. stereotype. <laughs> I, I, I get that. I get that. I, you know, the reason I do the diversity work that I do is, you know, is because I want to be able to feel like, I helped people. I want to be, and it makes me feel good. You know, if I feel like I found somebody a job who, you know, and, and they feel good about it, then it makes me feel good. I, I, I totally get that. But I still think that um, there's, you know, there's just something really cool about being able to do well by doing good. Well, there is. There is, and it feels really good, and it's really important. Um, I think when lawyers do it, it's especially important because uh, we can do things that nobody else can do. Uh, We can make the justice system work in this country and make democracy work in this country for people who need it the most, who otherwise wouldn't have it. You know, anybody, I don't mean to 
belittle uh, other charitable work, but you know, to go work at a food bank or a shelter, what you need is a really good heart. Um, to go do what we do and walk into a courtroom and make sure that our democratic rights are available to the people who need it to secure the basic necessities of life, only lawyers can do that. Um, right. So lawyers need a good heart and they need their skills and can do things to battle poverty and help people that nobody else can do. And we've got a certain responsibility to do it, therefore. Well, again, I thank you for it. And I appreciate your being here to be asked with me today. And I want to thank everyone for listening. And until the next episode, you know, I like to remind people that everybody's different and different is good. Hit it. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world.